Pie in the Sky Media. When I was a kid, he would play golf on Sundays early in the morning and he'd get home probably when I was waking up. And when I was younger, I would say like, how, you know, how was the game? Like who won? And he'd be like, oh, you know, we all did well. And I'd say, okay, but you know, of your foursome, who won? He'd say, well, I mean, I, I did okay. I, and I, so you won. And then by the time I got into high school, that Sunday morning, he'd come home and I would just look at him and say, so how many strokes did you win by? And he was like, why do you assume I won? I was like, cause it's you and you're Tom Randall and you are an excellent golfer. That's Ashley. And she's right. Her father was an excellent golfer, but he wasn't Tom Randall. Most people can't keep their mouths shut. And this guy. Yeah, Yeah. that's a great point. So so true, which he did. Typically, there's somebody that comes in and tells something because somebody told something, something. And he just, I don't believe he ever opened his mouth. Welcome back to Criminal Mischief with Carolyn and Brandon. You're listening to episode 68, Hiding in Plain Sight. Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway in the Thomas Crown Affair. Let's start with the money. Well, I don't have it. What would you do if you did? In this together, you want it in. You're going to get 10%. So you earn your keep. Two million, six hundred thousand dollars in cash. Whose head are you after? Yours. Mine? Yours. something else. That's from the trailer of the 1968 American heist film, The Thomas Crown Affair. The movie is about a handsome, adventurous bank executive who pulls off a multi-million dollar heist. He does it just to prove that he can do it. Steve McQueen plays the consummate leading man who exudes the duality of a debonair businessman while at the same time embodying a charismatic anti-hero named Thomas Crown. Theodore Conrad was just 19 years old when the movie came out, and the impressionable young man saw himself in the character. Spoken to one of his ex-girlfriends, and I told her that he played golf. And she said, oh, that makes sense. And I asked, like, oh, did he play golf or did he have a lot of interest? She said, no, but it's just, it's a very dignified sport. And that sounds like the sport that Ted would play. Did he come from affluence? Were his parents wealthy? No, but they said he was just always a very charming and well-spoken, thoughtful person. I mean, even at age, I think it was 15 or 16, one of his ex-girlfriends said that when he would come over, he would always, even if it was just picking it from like the the local park, bring her mom flowers. Like just a little bouquet of wildflowers that he'd clearly picked on the way over, but just wanted to show his appreciation for how good they were to him. That's Ted's daughter, Ashley. My name is Ashley Randall, and I am the daughter of Tom Randall, a.k.a. Ted Conrad. My new podcast is called Smokescreen, My Fugitive Dad. We'll hear more from Ashley later in the show. But her dad was so obsessed with the Thomas Crown Affair movie He watched it at least 12 times. He began to emulate Steve McQueen, wearing suits, just like Thomas Crown did in the movie, drinking expensive alcohol, playing golf, and loving fast cars. 
But what Ted loved most about the movie was the idea of being clever enough to rob a bank and getting away with it. Ted fancied himself as the fictitious Thomas Crown. Both were good-looking, had blonde hair and blue eyes, had a taste for the finer things in life, and, as luck would have it, the fictitious Thomas Crown worked at a bank. And in real life, so did Ted. And Ted didn't just work at any bank. He worked at the Society National Bank in downtown Cleveland, one of the largest financial institutions in the city. On the morning of July 11, 1969, Ted walked into the bank for his Friday shift as a bank teller. Just the day before, he turned 20 years old. Now, on the outside, looking in, Ted appeared like an all-American kid, trustworthy, caring, intelligent. He'd been described as extremely popular in school, so much so that he'd been elected to the student council. After high school, he'd attended New England College, but he'd only lasted a semester before returning to Cleveland, where he attended a community college and got the job at the bank, where, pretty quickly, he became a trusted employee. His job was working in the vault, where he was given access to hundreds of thousands of dollars. But Ted was hiding a secret. He never really talked about his family life, and he was so good at making people feel comfortable, it was effortless for him to steer any conversation away from his own pain that he felt like a burden to his family. I think that a lot of people can probably relate to having really complicated and incredibly dysfunctional relationships with parents, and especially step-parents, who maybe resent the fact that they have to raise somebody else's kid and your home life being somewhere where you don't spend holidays because you spend holidays at your friends and girlfriends because being in your home is that awful for you. But none of this inner turmoil was on display that morning as he walked into the National Security Bank, just like he always did, smiling and waving as he passed his co-workers on his way to the vault. Ted shared with his co-workers that yesterday had been his birthday, but that Friday night after work, he was going to celebrate. In fact, at lunch, he left the bank for a quick stop at the liquor store, where he bought a bottle of Canadian Club whiskey and a carton of Marlboro cigarettes. He would carry these items back to the vault with him in a large brown paper bag, making sure that everyone understood that it was getting closer to quitting time and he was so excited to celebrate his birthday in style. And he had his bag of booze and cigarettes to prove it. That afternoon, Ted would slowly and deliberately walk out of the vault as he did every evening, stopping by to talk to his coworkers along the way before he ultimately walked out of the bank at 4.30, smiling and happy. That was Friday. He leaves for work at the end of the day, normal, right? He left with a paper bag with some cigarettes in it and also a lot of cash. And everyone's just like, all right, bye, Ted. Have a great weekend. Have a great birthday weekend. We'll see you Monday. Because what nobody knew was that inside that paper bag, that supposedly had the whiskey and cigarettes in it, also was now stuffed with $215,000 in cash that he'd swiped from the bank's vault. That $215,000 today would be worth $1.7 million. You know, he worked in the vault. Security was pretty lax. There's one story we'd heard from an ex-girlfriend that one day during lunch, she'd come to visit him at work and they just were hanging out in the vault holding piles of money. Like it, it wasn't, I don't think that there was a lot of work going into him taking the money. Mm -hmm. You know, they all they all sort of joked about it. He and his friends like, oh my gosh, security at these banks are so lax. Like who couldn't just take the money? And it's almost like that 
seed planted in his brain. He's like, well, I could, I genuinely could take this money. Mm -hmm. And then I really could start over. I could leave. I wonder if this is actually pre the dye packs that they put in between the, you know. Yeah, there's, because he was just taking like money from the vault. So he didn't clear out the vaults. There was just, he just took some of the money. Mm -hmm. So, but he's also in charge of the vault. So I don't know what kind of security or monitors there may have been, but if there were, there was nothing on the money that he took. The money wasn't traceable. So the money was clean. And remember, it was a Friday. Ted had planned it that way. No one at the bank had a clue that Ted had stolen the money until Monday, which meant he had a two-day head start. Monday morning, when Ted Conrad didn't show up for work, that was strange. Monday rolls around. They open the vault, they go to check things, and they realize that there, there's a discrepancy. And also, Ted, the vault teller, isn't at work and no one has seen him. He was the vault teller. He was in charge of the ledger. And from my understanding is that he like falsified the ledger. That was Friday. So there was never any question from the authority's perspective. Pete Elliott, U.S. Marshal, Northern Ohio. Pete was just a kid when his father, John Elliott, a deputy of the United States Marshal Service, was assigned to the case. And from the beginning of the investigation, this was personal for him. Well, you know, where we grew up was in Lakewood, Ohio, and Ted Conrad had lived about two streets over where my mother and father lived. And we lived, you know, as kids growing up. And back in those days, there used to be a local malt shop on the corner. You know, our father used to take us in as kids. Well, Ted Conrad worked in that shop, I found out from, you know, my father. Ted Conrad and my father actually had the same doctor that was in Lakewood, Ohio during those days. Conrad went to Lakewood High School. You know, that's where my family grew up. We had two brothers and a sister. Uh, you know, we all went to school there in Lakewood, Ohio. Conrad used to work at a local lunch place where my grandparents used to go to and my parents used to go to. Um, so there was a lot of tie-ins back to, you know, my father and Ted Conrad where he took the money from was not far from where my father was, and so on and so on. Pete says the investigation would grow into an obsession for his father. You know, right at the beginning, since 1969, I think, as I've told people, my father needed an enemy, and Ted Conrad became his enemy really quickly. Why do you say it like that? Because there's so many potential enemies in this the business that you're in, and this is a 19-year-old kid, right? Right. But, you know, back in those days, you have to remember... You know, it was 1969, $215,000 is a lot of money today. It was a lot of money back in 2000 and, or 1969. You know, my father made $6,700 a year that year as a deputy marshal. So to him, I think what angered him was, you know, that this young kid was able to get away with that much money. Um, he was looked at as a quote-unquote Robin Hood to many of the kids around there. You know, they put up signs in their yard, some of them run, Ted, run. They uh, kind of, you know, were happy that he was able to get away. Well, my father wasn't. And, and I think what I meant by what I said a little bit ago was, um, you know, sometimes you just, what motivates you, even if you don't have an enemy, you create one. And that's what motivates you sometimes. And I think that's something that always stayed with my father, that always motivated him, motivated him to want him to catch him. From the very beginning of the investigation, Pete's father was playing catch-up. It wasn't just that Ted had a two-day head start. They'd spoken to his landlady, 
who described watching him leave his apartment with a suitcase at around 7.26 that Friday night, waving goodbye with a smile before climbing into a cab, and then he was gone. Deputy John Elliott asked the bank for Ted's fingerprints and was gobsmacked when he found out that the bank didn't have them. In fact, they didn't have fingerprints on any of their employees. And because young Ted had never gotten into any trouble with the law, his fingerprints weren't in the system. Another issue that didn't help investigators spread the word about the manhunt of the 20-year-old bank robber was the Apollo 11 launch. Ignition sequence starts. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engines running. Liftoff. It's unclear if Ted was aware of the timing, that just a few days after the robbery, on July 16, 1969, Apollo 11 blasted off from Cape Kennedy with Commander Neil Armstrong, Pilot Edwin Buzz Aldrin, and Pilot Michael Collins. A promise that was made by President John F. Kennedy seven years earlier, in September of 1962, to land a man on the moon before 1970 and to bring him home safely back to Earth. The exploration of space is one of the great adventures of all time. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. On July 20th, Neil Armstrong would be the first person to walk on the moon, and it's estimated that 650 million people watched him step out of Apollo 11 onto the moon's surface, and they heard his voice. The historic Apollo 11 mission dominated the news, which meant that most people were looking up at the sky, not down here on Earth looking around for a kid from Ohio who'd stolen $215,000. So there weren't a lot of tips coming in. However, investigators would get their hands on a letter that Ted had sent to his girlfriend after the heist in 1969. He would admit that he left town with one suitcase, that he'd made it to Reagan National Airport in Washington, D.C., and from there flew to L.A. Then poof, he was gone. In his letter, he would say that he regretted taking the money. Yes, he was a clever young man. But even with all of his planning, it's obvious he didn't have a clear understanding of the law. It sounds like he thought that he would only have to stay on the run long enough for the statute of limitations to run down on his crime. But he was wrong. In September of 1969, in absentia, Ted would be indicted in federal court on embezzlement and falsifying bank records charges. The key at the end of the day thought there was a seven-year statute of limitations. And there is unless you're indicted. Once you're indicted, there's no statute of limitations. So he was indicted on it. That changed his game. I think he was trying to, you know, figure out a return and all that at one point. But I think once you go down that path, it's hard to go back. Ted would not write another letter to his girlfriend. And there would be only one alleged sighting of Ted in October of 1969, three months after the robbery. A couple were vacationing in Hawaii enjoying a drink at a high-end bar, and they struck up a conversation with a well-dressed, charismatic young man. Later, after they returned home, they saw a news report about the Ohio bank heist, and when they saw a picture of the missing bank robber, 
They were shocked to realize that that young man they were talking to in the bar was Ted Conrad. The couple would call the tip into the FBI, but the lead didn't go anywhere. Deputy John Elliott would collect a key piece of evidence in 1969 from New England College. That's where Ted went in 1967. They didn't have Ted's fingerprints, but the application had his signature on it. And in a case with very little clues, this would turn out to be a big one, which we'll get to. But at the time, that was pretty much all investigators had to go on. The signature of Ted Conrad and photos of a barely 20-year-old kid and his personality which the U.S. Marshals summed up in a report, saying, quote, To all appearances, Conrad was that all-American boy whose character was not questioned and seemed to be a model of responsibility during a turbulent time. According to the FBI's most wanted description on Ted, they said that he'd be most likely to be known by another name, that he reportedly makes friends easily, and spends much of his spare time playing pool, golf, or going to the movies. That's all they had. But for anybody paying attention, what they really seemed to be saying between the lines was that a 20-year-old had seemingly outsmarted the might and intelligence of the federal law enforcement of the United States. It made John angry. You know, as a kid sitting around the dinner table and, uh, you know, as a, I told, you know, Ashley and others, my father would be like, hey, pass the mashed potatoes and when am I going to catch Ted Conrad? So it was always on his mind all the way through. Even though the case went cold, over the following years, the 20-year-old who got away with stealing a sack full of money became sort of like an urban legend. Where had young Ted, the young man obsessed with the movie The Thomas Crown Affair, gone? But without fingerprints, and the fact that Ted Conrad hadn't reached out to his friends or family, the only thing they could do was to wait and hope that a tip would come in. You know, we, we followed up leads as far away. We know his grandmother at one point lived in France. We had thought he had some ties there. We thought we came really close. I'm going to say it was 2015 or 16 when, after featuring him on, I believe it was America's Most Wanted, you know, we received a tip that he was in a boarding house in England. And everything added up. A lot of things added up. We had somebody that was, you know, assisting us, um, but we were able to retrieve items and match them up and find out it was not Ted Conrad. Pete's father, John Elliott, would never let go of the case, no matter how many leads turned into dead ends. He never gave up hope that one day he would find Ted Conrad. How frustrating is that? Yeah, we've had a lot of cases here, and, and this being one of them, and my people have come up, come on up on arrest number 60,000. And one of the sayings we have here, especially in our cold cases, because you get very frustrated with it all sometimes, but, you know, success is going from failure to failure with great enthusiasm. I believe as well, Winston Churchill said, we say the same thing. You got to keep at it. You can't quit. In 1990, Deputy John Elliott retired, and remarkably, his son, Pete, would take up the mantle becoming a U.S. Marshal of the Northern District of Ohio in 2003. And he began to work the case. Because even in retirement, Pete's dad didn't give up on the case. And in their quest to find Ted, they always believed that he'd be living the good life somewhere on a tropical island, wearing an arrogant smirk on his face. How we pictured Ted Conrad, we always looked at him, Conrad as being in some faraway distant island place with fast cars, lots of money, living a good life. The reality was, Ted Conrad was a lot closer to home than they could have ever imagined. Roughly 700 miles away from Ohio, 
In January of 1970, six months after the robbery, Ted would obtain a social security card under the name of Thomas Randall. He would move to Boston, and I'm sure it's no coincidence that that was the city where the majority of the Thomas Crown Affair was filmed. According to Ashley, Thomas, or Tom, met Kathy, her mother. And when he got here in 1970, he quickly made some great friends. Um, my mom was part of that friend group, so she sort of knew him in the peripheral side of things. Like, they weren't super close, um, but she knew who he was. What Kathy had been told about Tom was that his parents had been in a tragic car crash, that they'd both died, that he'd been the sole beneficiary of a sizable life insurance policy. Yeah, he was 20 years old and had just landed in Boston. He lived in a really nice apartment on Beacon Street and he wasn't working full time. And he said that the money he had was from the life insurance from his parents dying. So that's why he had money. It was his inheritance from their passing. Everybody who met him at that point just saw him as, you know, this kind of scared kid who is obviously dealing with something. But no one's going to push. When you say that your parents die in a car crash, no one's going to say, you know what, let's talk about that more. Do you have their obituaries? Give me details. You just say, I'm so sorry, and you move along. Right. I mean, it's the perfect cover, exactly because of all the reasons that you said, and the money, it makes sense, right? That's a very believable story. Tom would spend the next decade doing what he loved, playing golf. So he spent time hanging out with his friends. I think he also worked a little bit part-time. A couple of his buddies, their parents had businesses, so he would help out part-time. Um, his Essentially like his friends' family's businesses, something to do. And then my dad's only hobby for the whole time I knew him and the whole time my mom knew him was golf. So he loved to golf and he was a scratch golfer. So he was essentially the best golfer anybody had ever met. And he worked as a golf pro um, up here in Massachusetts. And he also worked half the year down in Florida when he and my mom were dating. And then that was his hobby forever. And it wasn't just a hobby for him. He loved the sport and he was really good. Yep. So he was working, he worked at a couple different country clubs and he essentially like ran the golf program. So he, I think gave lessons, but he was also in charge of everything like the clubhouse and making sure tournaments were going well. And then he also played what I think they called at the time, the mini tours down in Florida, because this is the seventies. So it's sort of pre golf being as well known as it is now. Like, I think everybody can name one or two famous golfers now. But at the time, it was sort of like the Masters, and that was it. So he played the mini tours in Florida. So Tom had met Kathy when he first came to town in 1970. But in the late 70s, they reconnected. Tom never discussed with Kathy exactly where the money went, or how much his parents had actually left him, only that it was gone. By the time he actually got together with my mom, the money was gone. He wasn't living in the penthouse anymore. He was living in a nice apartment, but in a suburb, Quincy, Massachusetts. He was working a full-time job. And it sounds like he just spent money on really nice places to live, not working. And then the last chunk of money, he always told my mom that he had a friend who had wanted to open a restaurant and he had invested in the restaurant and it, completely went under. I don't think it ever even opened. 
So by the time, I mean, per my dad, we don't know. We could never track where any of my dad's money went. Like we could never actually, other than paying rent, there, there's nothing to find. Like there was no money sent to anyone who knew him as Ted Conrad. There was never anything purchased in my dad's name, like no boats or second homes. It just seems like he spent it. Yeah. I mean, the only thing any of his friends at that time talk about is his gorgeous apartment. It was a penthouse and it overlooked the river, but he didn't have fancy cars. And they said he dressed nicely, but he wasn't head to toe designer clothes. Mm -hmm. So it just seemed like he lived a nice life. Tom and Kathy packed up and moved to Florida. After my parents got married, they were living in Florida. They were both working full-time jobs. And then my dad was also still competitively playing golf a bit. And the next step for him really would have been turning pro, like doing the tours across the country. And instead, he told my mom, I don't think I want to live in Florida anymore. I think I want to move home to your family. And I think we should have a kid, which was sort of never the plan for them. I mean, I'm glad that they changed their minds. But I think about the sacrifices that my dad had to make, because at that point, it was a decade after the crime, maybe a little less than. And you imagine if he had been touring the country, playing in decently well-known tours, that there would be coverage, even if it was local in the places that he was playing. And his face would have been all over the television. And 10 years after the crime, that's not really an option. I mean, talk about bittersweet when you think, oh, I got away with a million dollars, right? And then I have this dream and this passion and I'm good, maybe great, but I can't do it because of my past. So Tom and Kathy had gotten married in 1982 and not long after, Ashley was born. A momentous occasion for Tom that would solidify the fact that he could never go back home. The story that I was always told growing up was that my dad was an only child. He grew up in the Colorado area and that his mom was an accomplished musician. And then when he was 18 years old, his parents died in a car crash. My dad had no extended family and it was just too sad to be there. So he packed a suitcase, essentially left everything behind and moved to Boston. For Ashley's entire life. The father she knew was a golf pro who sold luxury cars for more than four decades. I actually grew up in the house that my mom moved to when she was 12. So it was my mom's childhood home as well. What I would think of is just like a typical suburban life. Went to school, I played soccer, uh, I got into theater, I played piano. And as much as my dad worked, because in the car business, I mean, you work 60 to 80 hours a week and you're sort of always on call. Like, a customer could call you at any time to want to talk about a car. But my dad was always there. He drove me to school every day. That was our special quality time, even if it was just a five-minute drive. He came to my piano recitals, my soccer games, you know, my theater performances. That he made the time he had with my mom and me special and memorable. Even just going to the grocery store for the weekly grocery shop was like a daddy-daughter date for us. And we would have time to talk and catch up and still... When I was 35, my dad would remember friends I had in middle school. Like He just was genuinely interested in my life and wanted to know what was going on with his kid, which now as I look back, I realize is really special and not everybody has that. In 2021, Ted Conrad, a.k.a. 
Tom Randall, was diagnosed with lung cancer. His prognosis wasn't good, and Ashley moved back home to help care for her father. We were just relaxing in the living room. I mean, at that point, my dad was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of lung cancer in February, March of 2021. So I had moved home from New York. So I was living at my parents' house. And the three of us were watching NCIS because that was my dad's favorite show. So it was always on. And he just looked over at us and said, ladies, that's what he called us, his ladies. He said, just in case it comes up after I pass, when I moved here, I had to change my name. The authorities might still be looking for me. So just in case, I don't want to talk about it, but just in case, I don't want you to be blindsided. After this shocking admission, Ashley felt like she'd been punched in the stomach. It was incomprehensible because up until that point, the father that she'd only ever known as loving and law-abiding in an instant had become a wanted man. And then just went right back to the television show. And for a split second, I thought, this is such a bad dad joke. Like, what a weird choice, right? Like, because my dad was always making just like terrible but amazing dad jokes. And then very quickly, I realized he wasn't joking. And I remember my mom and I just looking at each other like, what? But he didn't want to talk about it. So, you know, he just left it. It's, it's almost like so many things are happening already, right? Like, we're all in this living room and dad's laying on the couch because he's had a chemo treatment that nearly killed him. Like the chemo just, I mean, the cancer was bad enough, but that first chemo treatment, like I've never seen my dad so sick. And you almost need to take a beat to think, I don't even know if I can process this right now. I may need a moment because I don't, what do you even say to that other than what? I think that that makes complete sense. Knowing that your father is right before you dying, essentially what you're watching. And then he says this like off the wall comment, and it's like your head is already spinning on a million different things. So I think that absolutely makes sense that you wouldn't, you know, just feel the need to bombard him with like, what? You know, like, what do you mean? And yeah. also I need to process my own brain for a moment because this is bonkers. The wheels in her mind were spinning. But as she looked over at her father, she let him be for the moment. That night, after she went to bed, she couldn't sleep, tossing, turning, thinking, analyzing, worrying. The next morning, she woke up determined to speak with her father. And he's, again, he's like, I just don't want to talk about it. And I, you know, I don't want you to look into it because I just don't want you to know. And I really thought that I might be able to just sit with that and have that be enough. But it was not. How could that ever be enough? Like you strike me just in the 10, 19 minutes that I've gotten to know you that you're, you're caring, but you are going to find the answer. I think my, my first go-to is always like empathy and wanting to make sure that people are taken care of, but at the same time, balancing, like, I need to know. I'm not someone who you can say like, oh, don't worry about it. Don't even think about it. I'm like, no, no, I will worry about it. And I will think about it. Yeah. I just need, I'm somebody who just needs all the information to feel settled in general. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Otherwise, my anxiety is just through the roof. <laughs> so what did you go Google Ted Conrad? <laughs> Essentially at 2.30 in the morning that night, I finally was like, I can't sleep. I just have to look it up. Like, I just need to know. 
And I put in Ted Conrad and a bunch of things popped up, but I don't think that's a super specific name. So I think that I put in Tom, Ted Conrad missing. And that's when that first page of Google, it was headlines like vault teller robs bank, fugitive not found, Marshall still looking. And I thought, oh my God, this is my dad? Mm -hmm. My dad is a fugitive. My life is a lifetime movie. And then the next day I talked to him, just to the two of us. And I said, I understand that maybe you don't want to talk about this, but I'm your daughter. And if you changed your name, then I don't know my dad's real name. Like, I don't know my dad's birth name. And then what is my name? Like, if Randall isn't your name, then what does my name even mean? There was a little spiral about that, right? Like, what does my name mean? Who am I? And I said, I just, I deserve to know. I deserve to know my dad's name. And I deserve to know my name. And that's when he told me his name was Ted Conrad. Once Ashley and her mother had all the information about Tom that was available on the internet, they went to him. And despite their worries and concerns, they told him that none of it mattered. So the next day I told my dad that I'd looked him up. And I said, you know, this doesn't change how I feel about you. You're still my dad and I love you, but we have to tell mom. Like She has to know. And she, again, she deserves to know she's your wife. And he just said that he couldn't bring himself to tell her because he just couldn't do that to her. So then I told him that I would tell her, which he seemed to be okay with because he just, he couldn't. So I just sat down with my mom and said, I know dad's name and I can't even really tell you. So I'm just going to pull it up on your iPad and I'm just going to need you to read about it because it's too insane. And I'll just sit next to you. And she just kept saying, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, over and over and over again. Like she couldn't believe it. The look on her face, it was. I think the way I put it in the podcast is it looked like I'd smacked her in the face with a brick. And how old were your parents at this time? How old were you? So I was 35 and my parents were in their early 70s. Okay. And they'd been married all these years. 40 years. I mean, your mom had, I can't even imagine the gamut of emotions that she's trying to process, you know, her husband's dying. She finds out he's a bank robber. They've spent, you know, four decades together. Like, do I even know this person? Like, what did she do? Did she, I mean, you're in the middle of these two basically, right? Yeah. So essentially mom and I just went downstairs because at this point, my dad was in the living room. Stairs were really hard at that point. So he was living in the living room um, on his very comfortable couch. That was his spot. And we went into the living room and just said, we love you. We know what happened. And this doesn't change how we feel about you. She's like, you're still my husband and I love you and you're the best husband. I'm like, you're still my dad. But I think we do need to be able to talk about this because there's so much of you we don't know. And you've clearly been carrying this secret for decades and you don't need to carry it alone. You can talk to us. And you can tell us why and what was it like to have to leave your whole life because you weren't an only child because I'm reading it in the article. Ashley's father didn't live long after revealing his secret, a burden that had been buried inside of him for so long. For over 50 years, he'd been looking over his shoulder. It, it was incredibly emotional because we're, you're also, you know, and we don't want to bombard him, but we were able to have some really good conversations with the final weeks we had together. How many weeks or months did he have after that conversation? Well, I 
think it was about five weeks. I I wish I had written down that day, the date. Mm -hmm. But from that first round of chemo, the next month and a half is such just a mess of a blur. So we found out, he told us end of March, beginning of April. Mm -hmm. And then he was 21. of 21 and he was gone May 18th. Yeah. I mean, from the day he was diagnosed with cancer, he passed less than two months from the day he was diagnosed. According to Ashley, her father would explain to her that the robbery was less about the money and the movie and more about pain and wanting to start a new life. How did he just walk away? So many people couldn't, can't do that. So I think one of the biggest misconceptions about my dad is that he loved the Thomas Crown Affair movie so much that he just had to see if he could pull his own heist, you know, because of the movie and because he wanted to be Steve McQueen. And what we found out was that it really wasn't about the money or the movie, that for him, he just wanted to leave the life he had behind and start a new life and that he wasn't on the run for 50 years. When he left, he really was running away. He had parents who were divorced, who had both remarried. So he had step-parents, you know, without giving too much away. The way he sort of described that relationship was really difficult. And that a lot of the time he felt like a burden and that nobody really wanted him, which is heartbreaking for me because I can't imagine somebody not wanting my dad around. Like he's the guy that you want around for everything because he's wonderful and amazing. So for him, I think that he always would have left. I think he always would have just cut contact and restarted, maybe changed his name or not. I'm not sure about that. But when you're 19 years old and you're working in a bank vault, like he's the vault teller. His job was to be in a vault full of money. And he, I mean, he was 20, but he'd been 20 for one day. His birthday was July 10th and he took the money on July 11th, 1969. I mean, when you're a kid, it is a lot easier to think about restarting your life if you have a lot of cash than just to pick up and go with nothing. In a twist of fate, straight out of the movies, buried in the minute details of Thomas Randall's obituary, a clue. Somebody led us in that direction and said, take a look at this. And once we did take a look at that, we found similarities. And those similarities all look pretty good. But again, we've seen this song and dance before with England and different places that all added up for months and looked really good. But there's nothing that came out of it. So from there, what you start doing is digging. You start looking at who was Thomas Randell, right? And then what we found is that he filed for bankruptcy in Boston federal court. And then the next step is to get those records, all the writings you can give, get. There's a lot of things that don't change over a period of time because people are actually creatures of habit. One thing that doesn't change very much over the period of time is your handwriting and your signature. So from those documents, we pull those documents from Boston federal court. We match the signature from Boston federal court to the records from 1967 on the application and a lot of different writings we had on Conrad and you can lay them on top of each other at the end of the day. So again, we know we're on the right path. Thomas Randall's own obituary would lead investigators to Ted Conrad, posthumously. Kind of what led this was the obituary on Ted Conrad. With all the cases and some of the cases we've had over the years, one common trait, full lie, they lie very close to home. It's kind of like your password on your computer. It's going to be something that's going to be similar to you, maybe not exact. And in the obituary with Conrad Rendell, there were things that added up. He listed his 
birthday is, I believe, an obituary of July 10th of 1947, and Conrad's real birthday was July 10th of 1949. Same birthday. Some of you are always going to remember, two years apart. Grew up in Denver, Colorado. Well, that's where Conrad grew up. He listed his college as New England Community College, New England College. That's where Conrad ever went to school, and that's where Conrad, my dad had pulled those that application from 1967, I believe, from Conrad um, from New England College. And he also listed his parents as Ed and Ruth Beth Kruger, Randell, and the real parents were Ed and Ruth Beth Kruger, Conrad. If you'll recall, Pete's father, John Elliott, was the original investigator on the case. He's the one that tracked down and preserved Ted Conrad's 1967 student application to New England College. That document would prove critical to the case because it had Ted's signature on it. After 52 years, Ted's obituary, a bankruptcy, and his college paperwork would ultimately lead Pete and his colleague to a modest suburban home in Massachusetts. But that path is going to take us to one house in Winfield, Massachusetts, where we got to knock on that door and see what the heck's going on. And at that point, hey, look, it, we're feeling pretty good. This is looking better than it's looked in 50 plus years. But you never know until you get in there. And, and um, I can remember I went and I grabbed my cold case investigator, Eric Mydock, and I said, we're getting in the car, we're driving to Boston. And we're going to, you know, wait outside this house, see what we see, and then, you know, make an approach on the house. And we didn't know quite what to expect. Obviously, we did our research. We're sure if anybody's going to be home or not. We know those cars. And then we were, I think it was around noontime, decided to knock on the door. And, and Kathy answered the door, the wife, and identified myself. And Eric identified himself. And, you know, she walked and said, maybe I should get my daughter. And then I recall her coming down the stairs and saying some of the fact, well, maybe I should get an attorney. And I said, well, look at I'm not here for you, but we're not here for you. We're here because your husband, we believe, was not who he said he was. For Ashley and her mother, Kathy, it had all started out as a regular Tuesday. Yeah, like a knock on the door on a random Tuesday out of the blue. I've never been more terrified. But thankfully, Pete Elliott, who is actually the son of John Elliott, the original U.S. Marshal on the case, Pete Elliott is just a wonderful human being. And the first thing out of his mouth was, you and your mom, you guys are not in trouble. You know, that's not why I'm here. And he and I now have this amazing relationship. I mean, I talked to him a couple of days ago. He's the person I go to when I need advice. He's what you want all law enforcement to be. Yeah. If somebody was going to chase my dad and show up on my doorstep, I'd want it to be Pete Elliott. Over the years, Pete's father, John, had imagined that Ted Conrad had been living a life of luxury as he hunted him down, even after he retired in 1990 and up until his death in March of 2020. He'd never given up hope of apprehending Ted Conrad and bringing him to justice. Remember, the last place that Ted Conrad had allegedly been seen was in Hawaii at a high-end establishment laughing and chatting it up with a vacationing couple. This idea of this young man living in the lap of luxury that this arrogant, clever young man who watched a movie and planned one of the most successful and simple heists on little more than his low-level banking position and his wits, who had the audacity to walk away with a bag full of money, essentially outsmarting the police for more than 50 years. This enmity 
had spurred Pete's father to make this boy ghost his enemy. The reality of Ted Conrad's life was far less prosaic. You know, walking in that house, sitting down there, they informed me that it was a deathbed confession, that he admitted that his true identity was Ted Conrad, that he took all the money, took the money many years ago. And how, you know, for me feeling it was kind of, it was weird is the best way to put it, because I'm sitting there and I'm looking around and there's bill after bill after bill stacked up everywhere. And here's a guy that died of lung cancer. He died. He went bankrupt. You know, he left them with tons and tons of bills laying everywhere. You know, I remember looking over and seeing a CIS, NCIS hat over there. And we talked about TV for a little bit. And he, he talked about, um, Kathy talked about how much he loved cop shows. And I go, that's funny. My dad did too. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it was kind of surreal because you always, I always picture Conrad, again, being on an island, escaping the sunset and uh you know living this way different life and um you know at the end of the day you're in this not the biggest place in the world with bills stacked all around and and and, you know i think two good people at the end of the day you know he left them you know i I believe broke and i think he left them with different names that are still not their names uh you know to this day um so sometimes as i said you know everything doesn't turn out like the movies right doesn't turn out like the Thomas Crown Affair. This idea of who her father was is what made Ashley decide to launch a podcast about her dad and his life to set the record straight. When the news broke in the fall of 2021 and the U.S. Marshals had, um, you know, closed the case, they had a press conference. My mom and I's lives sort of just blew up. I mean, reporters all over our lawn, phone calls, emails. And I think the hardest part for me was that If you Google my dad, if you looked up Tom Randall, pre-November of 2021, you might have seen a couple articles about him in golf tournaments. But after that moment, Google corrects your Google search and at the top of the results page, it says in huge letters, Theodore J. Conrad, like wanted fugitive. And I felt like my dad was being erased. And my dad, it was just so important to me and I'm so protective of him that I couldn't let that happen and I didn't want my dad to be forgotten because of one day in 1969. So for me, it was incredibly important to be able to not only find out who was Ted Conrad and how does Ted Conrad, the you know the fugitive, the bank robber, relate to my dad, Tom Randall, but also who was he? And to not let the world forget that Tom Randall was this amazing person who everybody in his life still terribly misses. Hey, before I let you go, I wanted to remind you to check out this week's bonus episode, which is available right now. In our bonus content, my co-host, Brandon Morgan, and I discuss the case in more detail. And as always, thanks for listening. From Cloud 10, Criminal Mischief is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Music by Soundstripe. I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.